Hi, this is Marshall Poe, the editor of the New Books Network. And just a warning to those of you who are about to listen to this otherwise fine interview, there's a slight echo on the host channel. Shouldn't present too much of a problem because the guest does almost all of the talking. Enjoy the interview. Good day and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. We are going back to the beginnings of the colonial state in South Asia today. White Mughals and Joseph Sedley to be precise. Tillman Nishman is going to talk to us about the early servants of the English East India Company or the Nabobs as they came to be known. Warren Hastings and Robert Clive might be counted among these blokes. Very different from the self-professedly squeaky clean chaps who made up the post-mutiny Indian civil service, I can assure you. But then, as Philip Mason tells us, they were the founders of British rule in India. And life in the 18th century subcontinent was not just about acquiring diamonds and seraglios. They had tigers, competitive colleagues and hostile Indian princes to deal with as well. All the same, they managed to achieve a degree of infamy that astonishes. If you read Tillman's book, you will see how 70s Americans used the term Nabob as an insult to those with opposing political views. Fluffy and lovable, the Nabobs might not have been, but they made their presence felt in the world around them. And Tillman is now going to tell us the story of this interaction. Good morning, Tillman. Good morning. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to have you on the New Books Network. Thank you, it's and, a pleasure. And uh, this is a personally very fascinating book, and I especially like the cover art. Yeah, the, the, the cover art actually um, is the byproduct of my time here. I teach at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, New York, and um, I actually got the cover art from a friend of mine who is a, camp, a park ranger at the Saratoga National Battlefield who, when he found out I was working on the East India Company, said, I've got this great piece of art by James Gilray, and it was something I'd never seen before. So I think, I think the cover art is proof positive that, that academic historians working with public historians makes for a very good team. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, you've got all this uh, write-up about the art, I think, on pages 144 and 145 in the book. Right, yes. It's, well, the... It seemed to me when I saw the cover art, it was perfect. I'd used James Gilray's cartoons before, um, but I'd always looked under the title. You know, I'd looked up titles Nabobs or Warren Hastings. I'd never thought about looking for Leadenhall Street, which is where the East India Company headquarters were. And, um, of course, the cover art is a, is a picture. It's the Leadenhall Street Volunteer. Um, the East India Company at the time of the French Revolution was authorized to form a domestic regiment to protect its warehouses in case of an uh, invasion from France. And so the, the cover art is not necessarily Gilray being concerned or worried about Nabobs, the subject of the book, um, but being concerned about the company having its own um, domestic military force. But what struck me as fabulous is the way he still uses material culture. There's a shawl draped around the soldier's uh, shoulders. There's a ring with a diamond on the, the pinky finger, the, the badge on the hat is a teacup. There's an elephant in the background. Um, and even the, the scene that the soldier is standing in is labeled Golconda. But when we look at the, the skyline of the city, it's clearly eight, late 18th century London. There's St. Paul's and there's you know, the towers that sort of mark it as London, even though there's this fear that through material culture, the, the scene has been turned into India. So you did quite a lot of work that was related to South Asia. Yes, yes. The um, well, when I was in graduate school and working on this book, it, it, the book emerged out of a dissertation, of course. Um, I, I positioned myself sort of 50% between uh, British history and 50% between, well, 50% British history, maybe 30% British imperial history, and the other 20% South Asian history. So it's it's a it was an odd way of positioning myself, but it seemed the best way to make use of this particular project. Um, there's a school of, of history known as the New Imperial History in British Studies that really suggests that the relationship between 
Britain and its imperial history is such that you can never talk about one without already talking about the other. Um, and the result seems to me that the new generation of people emerging and the current generation of scholars working are very much going to have to train as multi-specialists, you know, train in Asian history or African history as well as British history to make that relationship uh, as clear as possible. Yeah, definitely, especially if you're dealing with the post-Enlightenment world. Right, right. Right, and it also seems to me it includes language training, and um, and that's not easy to do. There are very few places, particularly here in the States, where you can train in South Asian languages. Um, but it, it seems to me particularly critical, and I, I don't claim that my Hindi is phenomenal, um, but I did work in it and, and tried, you know, worked at it and tried to use it where I could. It turned out to not be terribly necessary for this particular project, um, but there's still something to be said for training in the language. Um, that's very interesting because I don't speak Hindi at all. Oh, really? No, no. Really? I only speak English. Okay, well, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't pretend that my Hindi is... Would, would allow me to survive. But, um, you know, a lot of the people that I'm working with, people like Warren Hastings, um, William Jones, some of these late 18th century East India Company officials went out of their way to study South Asian languages. They were the ones that were translating South Asia into um, something that was manageable for the company. And language was key to it. If we look at the, you know, the, the classic writings of, of Bernard Cohn about this, um, so it seems to me that there is, there's, there's value in it. They were constantly scribbling. Warren Hastings, I had a series of letters where he scribbled in the margins, and it turns out he was just sort of practicing text. He wasn't really saying anything substantive. Um, but I think it does tell us something about his mind, that he's capable of thinking in a South Asian language and willing to sort of play with it in that way. It, it becomes part of his, his pattern of thought, as it were. Um, that's, again, very interesting because this went of learning the local languages. That was something that pretty much tapered off towards the later period of British rule in India. Right. Well, and, and, you know, when I when you look at it, you look at some of the later viceroys um, and the later governors yes, yes. general, very few of them actually had the language. Um, the language of command and the language of rule became very clearly English. And if we look at, you know, from 1835 with Macaulay's Minute on Indian Education, where it becomes quite clear that the company um, is, is, in, is going to set up schools and it's going to train um, what Macaulay calls a community of, of Indians to be translators between the, the British and their, and their colonial subjects or the company's colonial subjects at that point. Um, there's a clear shift that happens there, but it can only happen because the earlier generation made the effort to, to I, I guess the, the word I would use is comprehend India, and that required an act of translation, and that's that's why I think in a lot of ways the kind of work that I'm the kind of argument I'm making about a real relationship between India and Britain, a relationship where culture flowed both directions and power tended to flow both directions, happened in the 18th century. It's less likely to happen in the 19th century. The, the acts of translation, the acts of sort of getting to know one another, have already taken place. And the power structure is such that we tend to see a great deal more unidirectional flow from Britain outwards to empire in terms of power, culture, um, and domination. So going back to your earlier point about uh, the East India Company's early servants going into the translation, you know, uh, putting the framework into place for the successors. So you would agree with Philip Mason that these people were actually the founders of British rule in India? Oh, yes, by all means. Um, and in fact, I've worked with them. I've worked with a lot of these folks for a long time. In fact, I realized when the book was, was finally appearing, I did some math and realized I've spent more time thinking about and researching and writing about Warren Hastings than Edmund Burke spent in impeaching him. Um, which, for those who know the, the impeachment trial against Hastings, it's an incredibly long trial. So it's, it's saying something to say I've worked with him longer than he spent getting impeached. Um, I actually did a, a master's thesis when I was uh, uh, early years in graduate school on the Hastings trial. And I was I was very interested in this group of people from that point on because it did seem to me then these were the people that become the foundational figures for British rule in, in India. And clearly, I mean, I'm looking at this period, 1757, to the, to the end of the 18th century, or you know, first decade maybe of the 19th, 
that is a critical period in the transition from, you know, uh, for the company's control in India. Um, but as I submitted that master's thesis, and it looked very closely at the Hastings trial and the politics in Britain surrounding it, it was clear to me then that, that I hadn't covered everything. I hadn't fully explained to myself what was going on in this period. Um, I had to go back to the cover art and my, my fascination with James Gilray's cartoons. I had a collection of these Gilrays that constantly focused on material culture. I had a collection of jokes and songs and puns and plays um, that, that focused on these men as clearly problematic figures. They, they clearly had done something that the domestic public wasn't comfortable with. But they all came back to material culture. And I just wasn't trained at that point to, to explain how material culture fit um, into the story. And so that's what I decided to do the Ph.D. on, was to in many ways fix the problems that I left behind in my master's thesis. Um, I still think, though, that, as you say, they, these are foundational figures. Um, and in some ways, I think they, the, the, the material culture argument that I try and make in the book helps to explain how that, that definitional foundational work gets done, not only in the establishment of power in India, but also in the relationship that the British are going to have towards this empire in the making in India. Um, you mentioned James earlier. Yes, so, so could you tell me something about him and how you came to be interested in his career? Um, well, Gilray is one of the great 18th century um, cartoonists, printmakers, etchers, um, yeah, if you go to any print shop in London, the old print shops that, that sort of situated, you know, there's one just off of um, Leicester Square, you're, you're going to find Gilray images. Um, uh, I, I don't know when I first saw him, actually. I, I, there are several books about, you know, the iconography and the, the imagery of, of 18th century. Um, there are books on crime in the 18th century. So I imagine I had been familiar with Gilray visually for quite some time. Um, and it was in the process of going through the the prince room at what at the time was the Oriental and India office in the British Library that I just entered Warren Hastings. I was looking for images of Warren Hastings, thinking for the master's thesis, be nice to have a picture of him or something to put in the in the text. Um, and in the collection there, there are quite a few Gilrays that have images of Warren Hastings. Um, and and it was at that point that I sort of collected every image. And as I say, there was clearly something going on. There's a Gilray, and, and I don't know the page it is in the book off the top of my head. It's called The Westminster Hunt. Um, and in that picture, Hastings is sort of figured as a fox in the middle of a fox hunt. And King George is the horse, and Lord Thurlow, the Lord Chancellor, is sitting on his back riding him. And the hounds are all of the people in the prosecution for the Hastings impeachment. It's Burke, and it's um, Richard Brinsley Sheridan and Philip Francis um, and William Wyndham. So all of these guys are there as the, the, the hounds, and Hastings is being chased away as the fox, but he had a turban on his head. And there's a couple of other images. There's Bow to the Throne, which is another Gilray, um, Blood on Thunder, which is another Gilray, all of these I deal with in the book. And in each of them, Hastings wears a turban and a cape and these loose-fitting sort of um, what the British in the 18th century would have styled Asiatic pajamas. He's got these fanciful curled tip shoes. And, and, you know, as I say, from the first moment I saw them, I thought, well, Warren Hastings never wore this stuff. Um, so why is it that this becomes the metonymic way of talking about Hastings in visual culture? Why is it that when the domestic public decides they want to talk about Warren Hastings, um, they do so in a visual way and they do so in this um, orientalized way? Right, exactly. And of yeah. course, there, the, 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 the book ends with the Brighton Pavilion, the construction of the pavilion at Brighton by the Prince Regent. Um, the Prince Regent is often portrayed in those images. There's, there's some Gilray's, or, or, or I'm sorry, Rowlandson's um, and Crookshank's images of the Prince Regent. Um, Several of them actually hang on the wall outside the gift shop if you go to Brighton today um, on display. And the Prince Regent is shown as being Chinese in those images. He's got sort of a, you know, sort of a stereotypical Chinese um, uh, mustache. He's got eyes that slant a bit. 
He's got a, you know, sort of a conical hat. He's got a, you know, a, a braid coming off the shoulder. Um, but the, the bigger pun or the bigger joke in those images is the extravagance of the Prince Regent. It's about the opulence and the money that he's spending. Um, it's about his weight. In these images, he's always shown as, as being very rotund. In some of them, he's known as Prince, um, Prince Teapot because he's actually, you know, the sort of shape of a tea kettle or a teapot. So in some ways, it's about the prince's profligacy that, that, that those images are dealing with. Um, the palace itself seems somewhat normalized. And if we look at the way the domestic public responded to Brighton, and it's built in, you know, 1815 in the sort of early teens and 20s of the 19th century, most of the people, there are quite a few people like it. They think it's beautiful. There's poems written about it um, that talk about the sort of beauty and the grace and the elegance of this palace. Um, some refer to it as the first major work of architecture that the British monarchy has really invested itself in because the British monarchs aren't known for, for their Versailles. Um, there are a couple of people who actually refer to it as industrious British architecture. So there's a real sense that something transitions um, in this fight about these nabobs, about these East India Company employees. Somehow this culture, this material culture, becomes a little bit more normalized. The, the monarchy can pick it up and use it. So that by the 19th century, I, I do see a world in which um, a viceroy can come back and bring with him ivory furniture, the way Warren Hastings does. Um, and it's not a big deal. Uh, a viceroy can come back and can bring some clothing with him that's a little extravagant. It's not a big deal. Um, curry houses have begun to emerge, and Indian food has begun to integrate into a cuisine, um, and it's not a huge deal. Uh, in the late 18th century, that simply doesn't seem to be the case. I make a, a big fuss in the introduction of the book about a, a collection of essays by, that came out not too long ago with Cambridge uh, by Catherine Hall and Sonia Rose. The collection is called At Home with Empire. I think it's the phenomenal collection of essays. Uh, most of them look at the 19th century, and Hall and Rose make the argument in their introduction that the British were at home with their empire. They were perfectly willing to sort of see empire all around them. In fact, they were so accustomed to seeing empire all around them in their domestic life um, that they didn't really notice it. They didn't really comment on it. It became like oxygen. It's, it's always there. You can take it for granted as a result. And I, and I, I don't disagree with them completely. I think that there, there is a sense in the 19th century that empire is present and empire is so acceptable that it is not commented on. What I wanted to, to do, though, was to demonstrate that it takes work, intellectual and cultural and social and ideological, to become at home with empire. And, and I think some of that work is done in this late 18th century period in this fuss, you know, kerfuffle surrounding these, these, these men who do originally bring some of this stuff back. And the domestic public sees it and says, that's just not us. It's not who we are. It's not culturally what it means to be British. Um, okay. And, of course, in the late 18th century, that's still very much up for grabs. Mm -hmm. um, so would you say that these people also played a role in bringing Britain to India? Oh, that they're, yes, I think they do. In fact, one of the, um, Tom Metcalf has worked on this a bit. Um, one of the things that's very interesting is when you look at Warren Hastings, the, the house he builds for himself in Calcutta or outside of Calcutta, it's a perfectly n domestic British-looking house, um, if I can use that phrase. I mean, I don't want to normalize something as domestically British, um, because obviously my point is that the these buildings that they're building back in Britain are also domestically British. Um, but he builds a Georgian-style Neo-Palladian house in, in India that I think in some ways speaks to, the, um, to his sense that Britain is advanced. It is, um, it is in a different place in its historical development. Um, and this, this building becomes a symbol of its power relationship. Um, and you see that over and over. The people will, you know, there was one fellow that I quote in the book who says when he sees the architecture at places like Bombay and Calcutta and Madras, that they are textbooks of architectural history. You see all the buildings from the past and all the buildings from the medieval period, and then you see the buildings that the British have brought, which represent modern progress in the present. Um, and and they, these people complain in their letters home, you know, to their parents and their siblings and their friends. You can't imagine it here. This place is so 
it isn't modern. It doesn't have all of the amenities. In so many ways, it doesn't measure up to the world that I know in Britain. And they frequently say, I can't wait to get home to the modern world. And what's interesting is when they get home, many of them having spent 20 or 30 years in India, they find that domestic Britain doesn't have all of the flavor and the culture and the style that they want it to have, which is part of the reason we see them importing the culture, the foods, the, the architectural styles with them. I have one fellow who writes back to his um, friends in India and says, you know, I, I really miss the bed I used to sleep on. And so he asks them to uh, ship him the pieces of a cot so that he can put it back together and sleep on the bed that he was accustomed to sleeping on in India. And it seems to me that, that these people live, I use the phrase braided uh, biographies in the book, they, they live lives that cannot be told as exclusively domestic British. They, cannot, they live lives that cannot be described as exclusively Indian. Um, they live lives that can only be explained in the synergy between Britain and India that is that imperial contact zone. So you mean something like the modern uh, Indian expatriate? I beg your pardon? Something like the modern Indian expatriate. So, not unlike that. I, you know, I, I do think there's part of... there's. There's something biographical in every person's book, and I think there's something biographical here. I can confess my parents were in the U.S. Air Force um, and lived abroad for quite some time. I actually was not born in the U.S. I was born in Germany on an Air Force base. And when you ask my parents to, to sort of talk about their lives, they can't do it as an exclusively domestic story. They have to do it as a story that, that is global. And if you ask them to show you their life in, in material collections, it includes pieces from Germany and pieces from their time overseas. Um, and, I, and so I suspect in a lot of ways that biographical information informed the way I was looking at these, these um, nabobs. They are people who are like um, diplomatic servants to modern nations or to expatriates, as you know, people who move overseas and can't fully tell their story. Um, I suspect you know the... the um, the work of Jhumpa Lahiri, um, the particular her novel, The Namesake, which made into a film, which is a, exactly about uh, a, f a fellow growing up in the U.S. whose parents are academics who have moved to the U.S., um, and they think of themselves as Indian. He thinks of himself as Indian because he was born to them, but he cannot live up to the expectations they have of him as an Indian because he doesn't quite have the cultural surrounding that they need to generate him as an Indian. He's grown up in the U.S., um, and, and so many of her, her novel and her short stories deal with that sort of struggle between being Indian in a diasporic setting. And I think these, these nabobs are doing something similar. Okay, yeah, that's a... Uh, how did you get interested in the nabob? I actually started, again, this is somewhat biographical. I, um, I trained as an undergraduate here in the U.S. in diplomatic service. I trained at Georgetown University and wanted to be in the Foreign Service. Um... I decided when I was abroad, I had an experience when I studied in Spain in an archive and knew that this is what I wanted to do, archival work. Um, I actually began my graduate school wanting to work on decolonization. Um, but the first semester I was in grad school, serendipity plays a big part of life. The person I was working with was on sabbatical, so I took a course on the 18th century um, and was introduced in one or two lines of Linda Colley's book, Britons, to the Warren Hastings impeachment trial. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Why exactly did the British uh, decide, particularly a figure like Edmund Burke, decide they needed to impeach this first governor general, who by an imperial measure seems to have done a good, quote-unquote, job um, colonizing India? I mean, Hastings, if you, if you wanted someone to build an empire... Yeah, yeah. It's not a bad job that he accomplishes in his time there. So what was going on there? There clearly is some sort of a fuss in this period about the relationship between Britain and India um, and Britain and the company and, and empire. That's really where it started was, was that question about the Hastings impeachment. And as I said earlier, I've become deeply involved in, in Warren Hastings as a historical figure. He is the, the one of the model nabobs, one of the most famous um, obviously, I didn't want the book to just be about Hastings. That has been done. Um, so I tried to see if there were other people, less famous, less wealthy, less known, that I could find. And, and as the book indicates, they're, they're there in abundance. And so what do you think the neighborhood to that sort of decolonization? 
You know, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think it would have varied. Um, they're, they're not a coherent group in a lot of ways. Um, the things they agree on are, 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 there are things they agree on, there are things that they disagree on. One of the questions of decolonization that I think would have really been important to them is um, the question of identity, the question of belonging. I was at a conference not too long on the culture of British imperialism, and I heard a couple of papers about decolonization and about what do you do, um, say, in a place like Hong Kong, uh, with Britons who have resided in Hong Kong and want to stay in Hong Kong even after the handover to China, or with, with Chinese citizens indigenous to Hong Kong who have always imagined themselves in paper terms as being British and want to continue in that, in that state. I suspect the nabobs would have found that to be a very pointed and very personal question, and I suspect it's an issue that would have deeply interested them in the context of decolonization. Um, certainly the, the aspect that, of their lives that I studied would have resonated with that. Yeah, and uh, one of the interesting things, you know, that I find is that uh, there's often a big uh, dichotomy, a big gap between the early servants of the East India Company and the later Indian civil service, you know. I mean, ideology in terms of that outlook, in terms of the lifestyle, Exactly. Um, do you think this is real, or do you think this is like kind of created by academics or by these people's own perceptions? Oh no, I think there's definitely something different. Um, I think there's, you know, particularly if you look, um, you know, late, much later in the 19th century, things clearly have shifted. Um, mobility, for one, makes it easier to come and go. Um, uh, there are. The 19th century is marked by a racial discourse that is that is significantly harsher um, and significantly more open. I don't want to suggest that the 18th century was a period of, of you know ultimate racial concord, but there was clearly uh, there was clearly a harsher racial discourse in the 19th century that made life in India um, clearer to uh, to the white settler community. You know, you look at the, the novels, I'd be moving into the 20th century with this, but you look at um, Forrester's A Passage to India, the folks like Rani um, Hislop in that book, who is quite clear that there's no need for a bridge, no need for a, for a connection between the Anglo and the Indian community. Um, that doesn't seem to be, that, that, that attitude simply wouldn't have operated in the world that Warren Hastings and, and some of the folks working in his time period would have known. It just wasn't operationally possible, um, and that is why I think we see uh, a different kind of world. You know, there's Edward Said's famous Orientalism does actually mention Warren Hastings, and I think Hastings is an Orientalist, as is William Jones, but they're Orientalists of a different ilk. Um, they are the Orientalists who are having to sort of sort things out, and I, I think that foundational moment is is clearly part of what makes this different. Do you think they had anything in common at all with the Indian civil service? Um, I imagine they leave any legacy. Uh, you say that they left any legacy for the civil service. Yeah, um, yeah. I imagine that they did in certain ways. I think there were clearly late in the in the 18th century, and as we move into the 19th century, East India Company officials are quite clear about some of the lessons from the period that I study. There are a number of people who write to one another saying, you need to be careful when you come back about the degree to which you talk about your, your time in India, the degree to which you want to demonstrate and be, be demonstrative about your time in India, you know, in terms of wearing any Indian fashion or using your Indian artifacts. Um, and and they, you know, they, they will tell each other, you need to re-domesticate as a Briton, and one of the things that they seems to be a fairly common refrain for them is they, they will talk about, remember Warren Hastings, there's a lesson there. And so, so perhaps across time, some of the decision to create this boundary um, may well be because of the, the this moment where the, the sort of interactivity of the imperial space was more prominent, and the controversy that surrounded that interactivity may have become a, a cautionary tale for later. I haven't fully investigated. My work has not moved in India out of the sort of early 18th, 19th century, so I don't want to. I don't want to be too definitive on that, but I think it could be the case. And uh, what about the other European powers in India? I mean, did they 
like think about these networks or not? Like what were their feelings on them? It's, that's a really good question. And, um, and it's the sort of thing that I have not found a great deal on. Um, there are a, there's a selection of, of books that I encountered as I was um, working on this about the French company. Um, there is a selection of material about the Dutch and the Portuguese, but not a great deal of secondary work on the, on the subjects. Um, what I did find is that the, the nabobs themselves, these East India Company servants themselves, would talk about the French and the Portuguese and the Dutch. They were particularly interested in the Portuguese and the Dutch. I thought that was really interesting. Right, I think the Fr- certainly the French were a more threatening power. Um, of course, by the you know after Clive and the Seven Years' War, they're not that big of a threat. Um, but one of the things that the British seem to notice, the company officials seem to notice quite a bit, is that the Portuguese and the Dutch have to use a term "gone native." Um, there, there's a woman that shows up in the book, Mrs. Cooperus who is a a Dutch colonial wife. And these company officials dine with her, and they say, you know, her food wasn't bad if you you like Dutch cooking, Um, but she was a very, very strange woman. Her hair was pulled back so tightly in a bun that it caused her eyes to go funny. And she wore her shift, her undergarments, on the outside of her clothes, um, and that she spent the whole night chewing betel nut. And so her teeth were red, and she had this this crispador, a spittoon next to her. So she was uncouth. She was somewhat native. It's not at all unlikely to suspect she might well have been mixed race um, because, you know, the, the Dutch and the Portuguese had been resident much longer. And many of these, these accounts will talk about people's uh, physiognomy, their skin color being darker. It's hard to tell whether that's because they're tanned by the tropics or, in fact, mixed race. Um, but I do think to some extent, and this is a real irony of, that, I, that I hit on in the book, these East India Company officials are writing home and they're saying to their, to the, to their corporate masters and to the um, government in London and to their friends and families, this is a place that innervates people. That's how they explain Indian history. As they see it, Indian history has not progressed um, they, and they describe this as innervation. India has been innervated. It has innervated the Indian people. It has even innervated the Dutch and the Portuguese, who have been there longer than the French. And I think that to some extent describes or explains why they notice the Dutch and the Portuguese more than they notice the French. Um, it's a dangerous game, though, because to suggest that India innervates and ruins the constitutions of people um, at one hand, it justifies why the company should come in and take over India um, because it needs a strong hand to sort of revive it, perk it back up, and, and drag it into the future. It also suggests that Britons might well be innervated themselves. The company nabobs don't seem to catch on to that. They don't seem to be aware that they could fall victim to the same innervating culture that they've identified in India. The domestic public who sees them coming back with their, you know, architectural difference and their culinary difference. And I have a section in there. Many of them bring animals back, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So they have their strange pets, too, um, that as they come back with all of this, the suggestion is perhaps they have been changed and innervated as well. So how do they respond to these suggestions and criticisms? Uh, the, the nabobs. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, the they are quite adamant that they are not different. Um, I, I the, the I at one point started a chapter, although I ended up changing it. It's the the anecdote is still in the chapter. I moved it from the beginning deeper, so I, I think it gets buried a bit. Um, with William Hickey, who was a lawyer in Calcutta for about thirty years, um, and Hickey returns home, and he has a collection of art and artifacts and and clothing and foodstuffs that he's brought back with him. And he arrives on the docks at Portsmouth, and the Portsmouth Customs House officers say to him, you can't import all this stuff. You have to pay a domestic tax duty to get it imported into the country. It's foreign stuff. And William Hickey's quite adamant this is not foreign. And and his paintings are the things that bother him the most. Um, There is an import duty on foreign art. Joshua Reynolds is alive at this point and is the president of the Royal Academy, is trying to bring about a a revival in British art and to stop all of this stuff from coming in from the European Grand Tour. And so he's trying to encourage a domestic art scene. So he's 
sort of encouraged the legislation of a tax duty on foreign art. And Hickey says, you know, these, these paintings are of me or my family, and we are English. They are paintings that are painted on English canvases, using English paints, English brushes, by English artists, painted in Calcutta, which is an English East India Company town, shipped back to England on an English East India Company ship. I don't see anything foreign about this. Now, you never win when you fight the tax man, so he does lose. He's forced to pay the duty. Um, but I think that's a really interesting argument. He seems to be willing to say Calcutta wasn't foreign. Art produced in Calcutta wasn't foreign. It had been, through the activities of the company, integrated into a global British continuum. Um, that strikes me as a very specific definition of British that is at home with empire. To go back to our earlier point about Catherine Hall and Antonia Rose's essay, um, it is very comfortable with the notion that British is an adjective that describes a global community. Um, the domestic public, that tax official at the, at the desk, um, and the domestic public and Joshua Reynolds who have put these taxes and these restrictions in place seem to want to use British as an adjective to describe the domestic space. Um, we have to remember that Britain didn't emerge until 1707 with the Act of Union between England and Scotland. So the use of the adjective British to describe the domestic nation is only about 80 years old at this period. And it takes more than 80 years to get people comfortable with a new national identity. So I think the domestic public is still playing out what it means to describe yourself as British. And these folks who are overseas for a long period of time when they leave, they think of themselves as British. While they're in India, they think of themselves in British as British. When they come home, they think of themselves as British. As William Hickey would say, there's nothing foreign about them. Um, yet the domestic public says, no, you lived overseas for 30 years. That part of your life is foreign. So they are really resistant to it. Um, and I could go through uh, name after name. Warren Hastings is quite clear on this point. His wife is quite clear on this point. She spends a good deal of time in India. She is herself German. Um, but when she comes home and the customs official sees all of her clothing because silk goods need to be um, taxed, she continues to insist, none of this is foreign. Nothing about me is foreign. Very interesting for a German woman to make that claim. Um, although she's friends with the monarch, who is largely German in this period as well. Um, she is um, uh, John Scott Waring, who is a political agent who works for Warren Hastings. Quite clear, nothing about this is foreign. They see British as bigger. I say in the book, they see British as about a voyage. It's about, a, it's about connectivities. The domestic public, it seems to me, sees British as about the land, the island, um, and, and the space. Um, so moving on, you're talking about uh, Warren Hastings' wife. Yes. And the subject of women in South Asia in general. Yes. Um, do we know what happened to Henry Thompson ultimately? You know, I don't. Um, it's, a, it's, a it's a fabulous story. It's one of my favorite stories in the whole book. Um, and it's, it's actually, I, I'm willing to confess, the chapter, the last chapter of the book, Nabob Inas, is the first chapter I wrote. And it's the chapter that was not part of the original outline for this book. When I started the book, because the company was quite strict on women and how women could and couldn't go, and the numbers that could and couldn't go uh, to India in the 18th century. There are very, very, very few women, uh, British women, in 18th century India. And so I didn't think that gender or women would play a big role in this this book. Perhaps some conversation about effeminacy. There's been a lot of work done on on colonial subjects, particularly Indians as effete. Um, and I thought, well, maybe some of that to deal with gender. The very first day I was in the archive working on this book, I was at the British Library. I found a letter from Elizabeth Sophia Plowden, whose husband, Richard Chichley Plowden, was a company director and spent some time in India where she says, I went with my husband to India, and you know she's writing to her sister, she says, you wouldn't believe it, I went to this ball, and, and these other women and I, we dressed as Kashmiri dancing girls. Well, in the 18th century, that's a risky thing to dress as, because Indian women were seen as potentially morally lax, and Indian dancing girls were seen as even more lax. Um, but she really describes this in great detail, and I thought, well, this is just a great letter, but it's one letter, and I don't know what to do with it. So I transcribed it into my computer, and I put it aside. But as I kept researching, I kept finding one after another after another of these accounts of, of people making fun of Nabob's wives. And that's when it became clear to me that there is something to be said for 
the fuss and the, the, the noise surrounding Nabob's wives and Nabob's mothers and Nabob's sisters, women who didn't go to India but are labeled as Nabob's as a result of their association, that merited trying to figure out why were women so disproportionately targeted in this anti-Nabob rhetoric and in this anti-Nabob discourse. Henry Thompson is a, was just a treasure, though, because, of course, he's this guy who goes out to India um, having left his wife at home. She is his wife in, as he, you know, he puts it in quotes, um, because she's a prostitute, a woman he met in Covent Garden shortly before he left. He wasn't sure he wanted to take her. He wasn't sure he could take her. Um, but when he decides that he, he gets permission to bring her to India as his wife, that he really wants to marry her, um, he discovers she's already arrived in India. Um, and and Lo is, you know, is, is wandering around and having all these trysts and affairs with his patron. It's just a great story because ultimately it suggests some of the moral laxity um, that the domestic public was quite sure was happening in India in this period. Um, some of the moral innervation that the domestic public was quite sure was happening. Um, and it suggests the ways in which these nabobs, you know, you asked earlier, would they agree on certain things? Um, and, and I indicated I don't think they all agree. It suggests some of the way that they were treating each other with, with rather gallant disregard. Um, but no, I, I, long story short, if that's still possible, I don't know what happened to him after this. Um, he clearly had resigned his position with the company. Um, in order to avoid the scandal of being caught with a prostitute. Um, he was, you know, sort of bounced back and forth between India and Britain for a period, trying to sort out and win some sort of compensation and pension. I do know he didn't get it. Um, so I suspect he, he sort of retired into ignominy without any real um, financial remuneration from the time he spent in India, which had to be a huge blow to him because the one thing that people knew in India in this period was if you went out and worked for the company, you could make some money. One fellow that I quote in the book says, you know, if um, India was a sure path to wealth if you weren't a blockhead. And uh, and this guy is this guy ends up not making not making any money. So that's quite a sad story. Uh, there's a Kipling short story which is said in parallel. It's, it's about this chap called Dicky Hart. I don't remember the title. But it's basically like he married a girl in secret because he's too young to get the marriage allowance. And then oh. he goes out to India. Right, you're thinking of Vanity Fair. Is that Vanity Fair you're thinking of? Um, I don't know. Uh, I didn't get it, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a bit of an interruption at the moment. No, I should just maybe repeat myself. Okay. Uh, it was uh, this Kipling story about this guy who like marries a woman in England and then he goes back to India. He is not really permitted to take a wife with him. He doesn't get an allowance. Right. And in the meantime, she has a baby and you know she just keeps on telling and listen to the And he can't run the He doesn't have the money. And uh, ultimately she takes her to someone else. And at this little boss will say, okay, you're working too hard. We'll give you a raise. And but that's just the letter that she just put it in so I just just commit up it right right and it is like like yeah. It's in plain tales in the hills. Plain tales of the Raj, yes. Plain tales from the hills. Yes, yes. Yeah. There was some breaking up there, so I didn't I didn't it was the, did you have a question or No, I was just uh, mentioning the other parallel case which is in yeah. a lot of similarities. Well, and that, the, the, it, I, that's one of the things I noticed in this work is the degree to which um, some of the, the actual cultural history is paralleled in the literature and in the cultural narratives that are told um, more broadly. Um, and I think that speaks to Catherine Hall and Sonia Rose's sense that empire does work its way into the, the, the wolf and the weave of, of British history. Um, you know, uh, Bernard Porter's uh, The Absent-Minded Imperialist book tries to suggest that, the, that those of us working in the new imperial history are making a mountain out of a molehill, that there really wasn't, that yes, the British had a very significant empire, but that it didn't actually change the day-to-day -day lives of domestic Britons all that much, and that they didn't see it all that much, and that it wasn't in, it, you know, you could tell a domestic story and an imperial story as, as two distinct things. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, 
I don't agree with Porter on that. I think ultimately Hall and Rose are right. Um, the, the empire came home, and it wrote itself onto British history to such an extent that, that they are not separable. Kathleen Wilson has a beautiful line in her um, introduction to uh, the Cambridge edited volume that she has called uh, The New Imperial History. She says, you know, it's been difficult to disentangle the local and the global since 1492, and I think she's right. It has been. Um, where I would where I would challenge that a bit is to say I don't know that we should really try to disentangle the global from the local. I don't think telling the local story as separate from the global story accurately captures the history that we're looking at. The accurate story here is of the story about how the local and the global integrated together over time. Um, I don't think it was always an easy process. But I, and that's, that's precisely why this late 18th century period seems to me to become so contested and so uh, hot, uh, hotly debated um, is because it is the period where they are really tangling themselves quite fully together, um, and as a result, people are responding to it. The result, though, is a world in which the great literature, the great poetry, the great drama of, of British culture all in some ways comes back to to empire. You know, as as I point out in a couple of places in the book, you look at the literature. Fanny Burney's novels, two of the four big novels, hinge on empire. Um, the number of plays that hinge on empire, whether it's some of Sheridan's plays, um, or you know, as we move into the 19th century, as you know, Kipling. Um, that it, it is just ever present. It's as I said earlier, it's like oxygen. It's just there. I beg your pardon? Uh, would you expect your future research to focus on any of this? Uh, actually, it's interesting. Um, because I teach at a small liberal arts college, um, and I'm the only British historian, uh, I have to think about, as I do my research, I, I have to also think about my teaching. Um, what is what's my obligation to the history department, and how can I expand the offerings that the history department at Skidmore College offers? Um, so I'm actually going to, with my next book, indulge a little boy fantasy that I have. I I confess I've always been fascinated by the Mutiny on the Bounty. I don't know if you know the story. Um, okay. The so 1789, the British uh, the British there's a mutiny on the HMS Bounty, a ship that was supposed to carry breadfruit back from Tahiti to the Caribbean to provide a food product for the slave population there. I've, I've always loved that story. I saw the movie when I was little. Um, and so I've, I've begun some research on the British Pacific that is going to use Pitcairn as a Pitcairn Island, which is where the bounty mutineers settled in 1790, as a, a sort of a central small location to tell a micro history that tries to map out British attitudes and British thinking about the Pacific more broadly. Um, so is there a connection between the first book and this new work? The connection really is this global and local. Um, it's not geographically the same. It's not dealing with India necessarily. Um, but it is dealing with the, the sort of globalization of British senses of self. Um, you know, as, as the British begin to expand out, I'm, I've got, you know, I've got some really wonderful stories already emerging. In 1832, a fellow arrives, his name is Joshua Hill, on Pitcairn Island, and he tells the 50 or so descendants of the bounty mutineers, the government has sent me to be your governor. And eight or so years later, when the Royal Navy shows up the next time, they say, well, who is this guy? And the people of Pitcairn Island say, well, the, the government sent him to be the governor. And the Royal Navy is able to say, no, no, we didn't. Um, so he's clearly perpetrated a fraud and has, has stolen Pitcairn Island from the empire. So there are ways of talking about the, the looseness of imperial control, but also the, the degree to which globalized senses of Britishness um, in the Pacific world trace themselves back into British history. There's just so much to the British Empire, just so many different facets. Exactly, exactly. Well, and as I said earlier, this allows me to start thinking about teaching a course on Australian history. I teach a course on Indian history at Skidmore. allows me to start thinking about teaching a course on Australia as well, because that will be part of this work. Um, the fellow, when they do capture him, there's some talk about sending him to Australia as a convict um, uh, in the, in, uh, as, as his punishment. 
Um, so, so there's there's some aspects there that we'll, we'll connect in. And, of course, there are Indians who migrate into the Pacific that I'm trying to trace in all of this. Oh, yeah, Fiji, Malaysia. Exactly, exactly. So there will be connections. Um, but but I, I actually, I admit, I have embraced the idea of the British global world. Uh, so in this next book, I'm trying to move into a, a new space. Yeah, it's fascinating because the British Empire is often divided into, you know, the nation states has become now. Like, you know, the British in India, the British in Malaysia. Right. And that just doesn't put justice to it. Right. Well, and one of the things that's very, you asked a question earlier about decolonization. Um, I, I find it fascinating that there is so much scholarship on the decolonization of the empire, and I think rightly so. It was a huge, I mean, one of the, one of the remarkable features of the last 80 or so years has been the, the, the rapidity with, uh, with which and the degree to which empires have disappeared. You know, if you look at the historical record, empire seems to be the default mode of human history. Um, you know, the ancient world is rich with empires. The medieval world is rich with empires. The early modern world is rich with empires. It's not necessarily an ethical or moral way of organizing the world, but it does seem to be the default way that humans organize themselves. So decolonization is a real, a real turn in human history. Whether it will last, I can't say. Um, but one of the things that fascinates me is that the British Empire did not fully decolonize. There are 14 British overseas territories still. Pitcairn is actually still one of them, which is why I want to I want to work with it a bit, um, because I do want to I do want to think a little bit about why the British keep the places they keep, what that says about the post-colonial world that certain places can remain colonies in a post-colonial world, and the degree to which we overlook the existence of or colonies in our post-colonial um, present. So so it allows me to play with some of that as well. It's it's an it's another interesting category, and as you point out, these these multiple categories. Um, yeah, and uh, well, said, I don't want to let you go. This has been a fascinating discussion. But uh, I'm afraid uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Well, it's been so, a real pleasure. So, so I, I, appreciate the, I appreciate the chance to talk about my work. So thank you. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. So, Fox, a great analysis of how a bunch of traders in India captured the imagination of the world and apparently attracted the animosity of most of their rather more domestically inclined brethren. A bit like city boys these days, methinks. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>